Okay, there we are. Sorry, I was distracted by the candy and by the cool uh, um, easel. Ah, I didn't. Uh, no, no, stop it. You guys can... I'm not going to read that. That's crazy. I'll get a big head, a bigger head than I already have. Oh, <laughs> uh, it says, uh, our pastor is a sweetheart original. For everything he does, he is always there to pick up the Reese's Pieces and answer our whatchamacallits. I haven't had one of those in a long time, by the way. Some, I think it's that sometimes we act like uh, airheads or nerds, and you probably think we're from the Milky Way, but you've uh, made a mounds of difference in our lives. Thanks for getting us in double, I don't know whether that's Wrigley's or double mint, uh, condition, gummy condition maybe, I don't know, for heaven, and uh, double, yeah, and thanks for uh, making us uh, smarties. You deserve a hundred grand every payday. You will always be in our hearts. And this is a long-lasting chew. A starburst. I don't know. It's a who? Okay, it's a now and later. <laughs> I hope you guys understood that. Um, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. That was pretty clever. And I see the I see the different handwriting. I did I didn't let that pass by. Some things go shh, but I but I caught on. I see the different handwriting. I really appreciate that. That's pretty amazing. So, um, with that said, we're in uh, Isaiah chapter ten. We're continuing on in this, uh, and today's message is faithful promises um, in tribulation. In tribulation. Um, it's uh, fitting the First uh, Peter uh, memory verse of the week, because the, when you look at that, when you read the the way that Peter wrote that in context, you see that uh, the context is there's an expectation. Um, uh, Miss Celia now has a wrestling name, Celia the Bigot, Celia the Bigot McKinney. Um, we're going to go through tribulation. We're going to uh, get people that don't like what we have to say. Everywhere that we go, when we stand in truth, truth has a way of doing that. It has a way of, uh, of working in people's minds and hearts. And uh, today that's not such, a, um, it's not such a commodity. It's not such a thing that people want. Um, yesterday I got the fortune of, uh, I was just going for a walk and there was a couple of kids, you know, just teenagers, little teeny boppers, and uh, got to talk to them and I dropped, I dropped some knowledge on them. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did say in, in part of our conversation, I said, look, um, you know, I've been on this earth for 56 years or 55 years plus, going on 56 years. I said, I just want you to think about something. Um, in 56 years, do you think I'd learned a few things? Maybe a few more things that you might know and understand. Some things that I've experienced in life. Have you been through 10 different presidents like I have? You haven't. I said, so I, I just want you to think about some of the things that I'm saying. I'm not saying this to be confrontational or anything. I'm just sharing this because I care about you. And I want you guys to know that. And of course, they were not, uh, they were, they were part of the whole popular ideology and Things like that, because I was I was walking around with my with my hat, and uh, they saw it, and it's a cool bucket hat, and uh, and I can rock it pretty well. I like that bucket hat; it's pretty cool, and uh, people like it. You know, I get people all the time. Hey, that's a cool hat, man. Where'd you get that? And I tell them, but these kids, they that's how the conversation started. And towards the end, they didn't call me any names. They didn't. They were they were more congenial than a lot of the young folk, but they got a chance to hear truths, truths that they've never heard. They got to hear that they are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and that they have intrinsic worth, value that is invaluable because they have them carry the image of God, something that they'd never heard of. And uh, although they disagreed with us, we left, and I said, see, now this is the way that, that just to let, give you an example, just to let you know a little life lesson here, 
said, this is the way that it should be. We should be able to disagree and leave in a friendly term. There's no reason to be enemies. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay, that's that sounds pretty cool. I'm like, yeah. yeah that's, so, you know, I, I thank them for sharing their their thoughts and their feelings. And, you know, we talked for a good 20 or 30 minutes there in the park. It was totally unexpected. And it all had to do with just a hat, a bright red hat. <laughs> and they thought it said something, and it said something else, and I teased them a little bit, but they didn't like what it said. And uh, I said, you know, now you like it even better, don't you? <laughs> And then that started the conversation. But we're in a time where um, God's promises are always faithful. And they're going to be in tribulation. It wasn't uh, a hardship for me to be able to share with these kids. Um, but it was, uh, it was a good thing to be able to share with them, even though they disagreed. Even though they can't see. Even though truth is not a uh, commodity that people uh, adore anymore. Because when truth is whatever you decide you make it to be, it's no longer a commodity. And truth has intrinsic value. And it's uh, not everybody loves the truth. And that's the way we are in. That's the times we are in. But that's the same thing that was going on in the times of Isaiah. And if you remember from last week, God, in his uh, indictment with them and, and sharing with them, telling them that, hey, there's a judgment coming, and it's coming quick, super fast. If you remember, he said that when... Uh, um, that when it's all over and said and done with, that uh, and even those ones that he's going to use, where they used to have forests that were filled and uh, amazing, amazing trees and forests, and he says they're going to be so limited and so destroyed, and there's going to the destruction is going to be so great that a child go into that forest and count the trees. That's how much the destruction was going to be. And so here, from uh, uh, verse twenty through thirty-four. Um, he talks about the continuation of this. But through it all, um, as he's doing, and this is really uh, something to grasp hold of, as he's calling out what's going to take place, and it's pretty horrible. It's pretty horrific. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, and it continues. But I love the fact that God is God, and the God who has revealed himself to, to sinners like us, to call us his own, to make us his own, to draw us, to drag us, because that's what it took. I mean, if we're honest, that's what it took to be dragged back to him. Um, he, in saying uh, and de decreeing his judgments that have to come, he doesn't exclude those who are his from the tribulation. We're going to go through it. And in that tribulation, the one thing that I that I just kept reading as I was looking at this is, is God's faithful promises to His own people. He doesn't leave people without hope. He doesn't rob His own of, of hope. In fact, He says, yeah, you're going to go through it. All these things that are described. He says, but I'm, I'm going to take care of those people that harassed you. I'm going to take care of those people that, that persecuted you. They're going to get their up and coming. Don't worry about it. He says, but there will be some of you that come back. That's my promise. I won't forget you. My, my, even my wrath will pass. And that's the, the, the principle of, of this faithful promises of God in our tribulations. We're going to go through it, just like Peter says. I mean, look at the expectation there. He just simply says straightforward, after you have suffered a little while. That's an expectation. He's saying you're going to suffer. And after you've suffered a little while, then what? Says, well, uh, after a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast? This is perfectly fits perfectly with with the message of today that we're in here in Isaiah chapter ten, verses twenty through thirty-four. And I want to just read chapter twenty to start with and go into a little time of prayer. And uh, it just says simply this: is continue. Remember, it says your forest, the forests are going to be so destroyed that a child could write down the number of them. That's a very bare mountain, very bare forest, if you think about it. I mean, that, that's the... Think about a child being able to count them. Um, when normally, you can't, when you're up above them and you, we see in our modern technology with the, the little hover crafts and hover things that we have, you can't even count the trees in most forests. He says it's going to be so 
The, the destruction can be so horrible. A child could write this. And on the heels of that, he says in verse 20, he says, Now it will come about in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. See, that was part of their problem. But will truly rely on Yahweh, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And that's an amazing thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. We thank You, Lord, again, that You have revealed Yourself. That You've made Yourself known through the pages of Holy Writ so that we can know You. And we can experience You. And we can know that You are holy and righteous and good and just. That You are the God who created all things. And all these things You've made Yourself known through Your Son, our Savior and King. Even Jesus, the Lord, who gave Himself as a sacrifice that we might know You. Oh Lord, I'm so thankful that You um, are the One through Jesus who has made us to know You. And You've revealed Yourself to us through Your Son, through our King, through the One who took our, our sin, the One who paid that price. The one who gave himself and came to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a glorious God that you are. Truly, you are worthy to be praised. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would just illumine our minds and our hearts and our spirits to worship you all the more and to acknowledge the awesome God that we have in your holiness and perfection and goodness. We should all be stricken down and judged guilty. But that wonderful sacrifice on that tree so long ago takes away all our sin. And we thank you. We thank you for your graciousness and your love and your mercy and your kindness and your long-suffering. We thank you that you are the God who has revealed himself. Reveal yourself even this morning, Lord, to those who maybe have never heard, to those who maybe have never known. They might know you love you, worship you, and adore you, and bless your holy name. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray that he would be glorified. Amen. Amen. Whoo! What a king. So as I was saying in our last chapter, we read uh, how God was going to hold Assyria accountable and guilty for going beyond what God had enlisted them to do and for them to uh, accomplish. And in doing so, it was uh, in the arrogance and the pride, the pridefulness of their hearts that they did so. That's why they were guilty. We're going to go beyond. We're going to do this because we can, because we're powerful. We're, we're strong. We're mighty. Um, so God judged that. He holds them accountable. Um, when we're talking sometimes with an uh, anti-theist, and uh, one of the th arguments that they make is, you know, if God made everything, if He's in control of everything, and if He's decreed everything, then, then how can He hold us accountable if we're sinful? You know, that's, that doesn't sound right. But it's crazy when you think about it, because they're making a moral judgment on God. It's like, <laughs> hold on a second, you're forgetting one thing. And uh, please, you know, excuse the, the phrase, but we're guilty as hell. Every single one of us, we're all guilty. And they seem to forget that over and over and over again. They forget to look and see of the things that we're guilty of. And uh, and it's uh, I see it all the time on posts that I uh, uh, am in uh, in and on on Facebook where people just do not believe and and uh, you call them out on the sin that that is present. Usually for organizations, and people just jump in and they laugh and they mock and they scorn God. It's crazy. No matter how much you warn them, they will not hear. But I always pray that God would use that somehow, some way to, to work in the hearts of those that might be reading and just make them think. The Assyrians, with their prideful hearts, their hearts were raised in haughty eyes and haughty hearts and haughty minds. Um, God says, no, I'm going to hold them accountable. And uh, 
But God is the one who is the God of all the earth. He's, uh, um, he's not immoral. There's no way that you can, and no, no human being can make a moral judgment against God. He's totally perfect and righteous in all his ways. There failed indictments of God that they refused to acknowledge the obvious guilt and rebellion of man. Man is not good. Um, I don't know if how many of you have seen the study that, uh, that are at the latest studies that have come out. Ligonier has posted some of them that uh, 46% of evangelicals in 2020 believe that man is basically good. Oh, he's, he does a few things to mess up, but he's basically good. That's a lack of biblical understanding. That's total biblical illiteracy. That's nearly 50%, y'all. It's pretty sad. It makes me wonder what other churches are teaching. Um, they're obviously not teaching enough, or people just aren't listening, or they're just filled with goats. Because they're not listening. They're not understanding. Because if you actually think that people are good, then why would, why would God be so cruel as to send His Son to suffer what He did if men are good? It doesn't make any sense. So regardless of what uh, 46% of evangelicals believe, um, as they, were, they, they said that uh, all people sin a little but are basically good, well, God must judge the guilty. And he judges everyone equally from the point of view of his justice and his righteousness and his goodness. It's part of his inherent nature to do so, and it is part of his justice. So when God begins here in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped. So there are some who did escape. But he says, we'll never again rely on the one who struck them. That's one of the problems that that, uh, the people at that time had done. They had made alliances with enemies. That God told them, don't make alliances with these people. I'm going to be your source. I'm the source that is the resource. I will be the resource that you need for everything. I will provide. I will provide for all those things. And instead, they made allegiances with man um, on a horizontal level. They turned away from God. And he says that uh, no more will those who struck you. And that's what what they did. You know, a scorpion is always going to be a scorpion, no matter what. Right? And that's what they did. They would turn. They would turn on the Israelites. He says, says, you will never again rely on the one who struck them, uh, on the one who who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Remember that that uh, Isaiah's first son. You guys remember his name? Jer, or uh, Yashuv. Um, he's mentioned right here, not personally, but he says a remnant will return. There's that name, so that you know. Every time you read that in the Old Testament, I want it so stuck in your head that every time you see it, like I do, you think automatically of that. Shear Jauv. Um. That's the name, and that's exactly what he's saying. He's reminding them that, look, this stuff is going to happen, but a remnant's going to return. I've got people. I've got people hidden away. I've got people who are mine. And they're going to return to the promise that I have made. That's what this whole message is about. When I was reading it, I just saw the faithful promises of God in tribulation. He doesn't promise to take us out of those things. We have to see them. We have to go through them. And they're not directed towards His people in the sense that those who are His chosen and His elect. But we have to endure and we have to persevere through these things. And we're going to see some awful things. And that's what He's saying right here. He says, but a remnant will return in verse 21. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. I love that. The mighty God. Um. He says in verse 22, uh, for though you, uh, for though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea. There's another promise that he had made them. We'll get into that in a minute. Only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. Notice the paradox there. He's like, destruction's coming, 
and it's going to be horrific. But in God's judgment, in every single one of God's judgments, when He judges everyone at the very end, those who would not come to Christ, at the white throne judgment, every one of the judgments and the indictments and the, and the condemnations that He passes down will be just. And they will be good in their righteousness. They're overflowing with righteousness. That's what he says. They're overflowing with righteousness. See, everything that God does is good. And when he says good, it's not good like, you know, these good candy bars that are back here. He's talking about the good, the perfection of goodness that he is. It's overflowing with that righteousness. And as if to say, the judgment is going to come, a small remnant will come. But in that judgment, everything that I've done, for good. It's for ultimate good. It's for good that you can't understand or comprehend. It's overflowing. And I love that word. I love that he's so expressive. It's not just righteous. It's overflowing with righteousness. It's overflowing the banks. It's like a flood that you can't stop. The banks can't hold it in. It's going to overflow with what? With righteousness. So it's not something to fear in that sense. He says, for a complete destruction... It's not just a destruction that is determined. In verse 23, he says a complete destruction. One that is decreed. And if God has decreed it in eternity, it will come to pass. And it will come to pass in the perfect timing of His decree. Not one moment before, not one moment after, at the exact moment that He has decreed it to occur, those things will happen. And he says it's a complete destruction. One that is decreed the Adonai Elohim of hosts. The Lord God of hosts. Remember, the Lord God of hosts. The host signifies, it has the intent that it's militaristic. It's going to be done with surgical precision. This destruction. With military surgical precision. The idea of it's going to be a, a, a horrible destruction. For the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Now, if we were to stop there, man, if he was to stop there, I could see people just dying just due to hopelessness. But he goes on. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with a rod and lifts up his staff against you the way that Egypt did. There's going to come that destruction. It's going to be complete. It's going to be Assyria. Remember? Swift is the booty. Speedy is the prey. Maharshalal hashbaz. I'm going to keep saying those things so you guys just can't get it out of your head. Remember those two names, Yar Jauf and Machor Shalal Hasbaz. He says, it's coming. He says, but don't worry. Oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear. The Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you like Egypt did, the way that Egypt did. He says in verse 25, for in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. It's going to come. It's going to come against you. But then my focus is going to turn. My wrath will turn from you. And it will turn to someone else. Um, and that's an awesome thing. It's God's promises. Like it's not going to endure forever. But I have to. I have to pour out my wrath. I have to pour out the judgment. That I've decreed. I have to. It's not going to last forever. And I'm going to turn that wrath to the Assyrians. They're going to pay for what they've done. The promises of God in tribulation. <clears throat> he says in verse 26, And the Lord of hosts, this way is the Yahweh of hosts, will arouse, scourge, 
against him. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's going to bring this plague amongst the Assyrian warriors. They're going to waste away. He's saying this again. He says, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift up the way he did in Egypt. Notice how he plays the, the word Egypt. And the one sense, they were the ones who lifted up their rod against you in slavery and enslaved you. Assyria is going to do the same thing. He says, but um, he's also, he will lift up his uh, staff the way that he did in Egypt. And he's talking about we'll be over the sea. He's talking about the staff that Moses was given to part that sea so that they could go through and get to the promised land. There's hope. There's hope. There's promises, faithful promises in tribulation. And uh, this, uh, this rock of Oreb, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known um, what he was referring to. And they would have known and understood that he was talking about the fact that God reminds the people through Isaiah of their own history. That's why he mentions these names. They would be familiar with them from their history. At the time of the judges, specifically this judge was Gideon. When he chose Gideon to be a judge in the battle of, uh, against Midian, the very same people, this is what he's talking about when he says the rock of Oreb. Um, God told uh, Gideon to gather an army together to fight against his enemies. And there was 32,000 to start with. God says, that's too many. You guys, is, you get all big-headed. You get full of pride. And you'll take the credit for this. Like, no, 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 that's too many. Let's cut it down. Tell the men, and uh, Gideon said, if, if, if you're too afraid, your heart's melting within you, said, walk away. We won't, we won't hold it against you. We're not going to talk bad about you. Go back and protect your families there. And it reduced the 32,000 of the men of Gideon down to 10,000. God said, nah, that's still too much. Still too much. And keep in mind that they're fighting an army that was bigger than 32,000. God says, 10,000 is still too much. But that's more than three to one. <laughs> Not, that's not a good military move, God. It's like, no, nope, 10,000 is too many. I want you to reduce it even more. And the next time he reduced it, he reduces it from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. God says, okay, now, now you're okay. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's not a very wise military move on our part from our perspective. But God says, no, I want you to reduce it down. Why? Because 300 against tens of thousands? Who's going to take the credit there? What's going to take for 300 to overtake them? A miracle. It's like, no, I got this. This is my war. This is my battle. They had forgotten these things. So God reminds them, kind of, you know, hinting at those things of, of, that took place in the, in the past where God glorified himself by taking care of the enemies for them. And how did he do that with these 300? Well, Gideon... Surrounds the camp as best they can. He splits them up into different groups. And he takes a hundred of them. He says, okay, the hundred we're going to surround. And at the very same time, we're going to synchronize. Everybody synchronize your, your sundial watch in the dark. <laughs> and at the same time, we're all going to bust our pitchers. Make a big bracket from all over the place. But God, in His sovereignty and His providence, He gives... Some of these, uh, um, this enemy, he gives them a dream. And the dream is disturbing and it starts a rumor. And the rumor is, uh, God has given Gideon the victory. He's going to defeat us. Their God's going to somehow do something. And in the night, with the hundred guys, they break their pictures at the other, at the right time. And then everybody switches and picks up in the right hand a trumpet. That's right, a trumpet. <clears throat> and in the left hand, a censer or something that has fire in it. 
And they surround it and they all of a sudden start coming down onto this camp. And they blow that trumpet. And all this confusion all of a sudden happens. And next thing you know, this army in the dark that had this rumor started from this dream, they start killing one another. <laughs> they start fighting like the orcs. They can't control themselves. And that in the uh, return of the king, they, they can't help themselves. They, they just got to destroy this. They're just full of destruction. And this confusion comes upon them. And that's the, his, the history. And the two kings, the leaders of these enemies, Oreb and Zeb, that's where they were destroyed. At the rock of Oreb. God had given them the victory with just 300 men. You can't fight a war with 300 men against over 30 or 40 or 50,000 men. But God can. See, that's what we often forget. We often forget that God plus the one is the majority. Because God is in control of everything. And so he says, just like what happened in Midian at the Rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he, and on top of that, he says, not only is it going to be a defeat of the war, this military might, but it'll also be like the splitting of the sea, and it'll just be a faithful one holding the staff and splitting it. Then he says in verse twenty-seven, he says, "So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders, and his yoke from your neck." And the yoke will be broken because of fatness. I like that. Because of fatness. Because of health. Because you're going to be strong. Because you're going to be well fed. It's going to bust off of you. All that weight of all the burden that he had put on you is going to be just demolished. A faithful promise and tribulation. In verse 28 he says, He has come against... Uh, Ayath, and he has passed through Migron. At Mikmash, he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the pass, saying, Geba will be our lodging place. This march that the Assyrian army had taken had just overthrown all these cities, all these peoples. So much so that they just were just assuming things. This is the way that it's going to be. They have gone through the past saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Notice, it's like, yeah, that's where we're going to sleep. We're going to sleep over there at that place. This was a big army. This was a big, mighty, powerful, in human perspective. Huge army. Powerful. Fierce warriors. And he says, Ramah is terrified. And Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Just the thought of them. Just the hearing that they're coming. People were fleeing. It says in verse 30, Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Laisha, and wretched Anathoth. Madmina has fled, and the inhabitants of Gebim have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fists at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And Zion, of course, is the city of David. That's what Zion is. Whenever you see the word Zion, talking specifically about David, when David, after Saul was was removed, David went in and uh, took a place there in Jerusalem. He took that city and he made it his own. And it's known, it was always known thereafter as the city of David, Zion. That's specifically what he's talking about. And he's come out against all these things. He's done all these things and God is yet going to repay There's a recompense. The enemy won't get away with it forever. And that's the hard part. That's the difficult part. When we see the injustices that are being poured out everywhere, all around us, when we see the the redefinition and the redefining of what God has already called in His created order, and we see people want to, uh, you know, I mentioned talking to those kids, and that was one of the discussions that we had. They have a problem with, with people who believe that that love is defined by what God has already decreed. Namely, that love, when we're talking about human love with between a man and a woman, is between one man, one woman for life in the bonds of marriage. And that's the way that God has described that type of love. 
And they don't want to receive the fact that, well, love can be whatever you want it to be. It's like, no, that's, no, that's not what God has said. Sorry. Thank God that we're free to say, you know what, if you want to believe that, you can, but you're going to stand before God and answer for that. You're going to. You're going to stand before God and answer for those trying to redefine what He has called out, what He's already said. I had another discussion with someone who, who uh, when we were talking about, uh, I was talking about the immorality in the, of, of the homosexual movement and the whole uh, LGBT thing, QRSTV thing. And, and I just said, look, I was said, that's such an old-fashioned idea and philosophy. It's outdated. I'm like, mm, no, no, it's not. Said your idea is the one that's outdated and old fashioned. You can find it in Genesis when man rebelled against God and decided, no, I'm not going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to make it my own. Said you are the one who has the old fashioned, outdated idea and philosophy, sir. God is relevant always. His word is true always. Even today, it has not changed. And you will stand accountable. Repent, my friend. Repent. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your wicked ways and be saved. And know that your sins can be forgiven. You will stand before God. He says, yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion. The hatred for God's people. The hatred for the things of God. This is what is being displayed here. It's one of those things where he's at the bottom of the hill. Assyria is shaking his fist. Not just to Zion, but the things of God. And we see that today everywhere. Don't we? We see it everywhere. We see it in red and we see it in black and we see it in yellow. I've seen that symbol, shaking that fist at God. And it started so long ago, it's nothing new. It's old-fashioned, it's outdated. The starters of those things, Stalin, Lenin, Mao Zedong. I'm so glad for God and His judgment and His justice. They will pay. They have paid. And they will continue to pay. For all their wickedness, for all their godlessness, for all the things that they unleashed on people um, through their tyrannical um, edicts and godless laws that they made, they started with, let's take away people's hope. Let's take away their God. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That's what was going on this time. It's happened in the past. It happens continually because in our fallenness, in our depravity, we hate God. We want nothing to do with God. We want to just enjoy our sin and not be held accountable for it. But that's the purpose of the gospel. To convict us of our sins. To cause us to know that we're guilty before a holy, righteous God. It's not just sicknesses that we deal with. It's not just, addictions aren't just sicknesses. They're a symptom. Something deeper. Sinful nature that is within us. And the only thing that can overcome it is Christ Jesus. He is our only hope. And he says in verse 33 here, Behold, Yahweh, the Elohim of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also those also who are tall in stature will be cut down. Remember when they came into the land, when they sent the spies out before they came into the land? They sent out ten guys. Some of them came back and said, they're like giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We don't stand a chance. But there was those faithful few, the remnant. said, man, we got God on our side. What are you talking about? He already said he's going to give it to us. Y'all are crazy. Let's go take the land. What are you waiting for? 
And it cost them 40 years. It cost them dearly. And it cost them their lives. Let us not be faithless in those things. You know, God in His Word, He commands us as His people to not to be fearful. He says, don't be, do not fear. He says, do not be afraid. He says, fear not. 365 times in different ways that He says that in the Scriptures we find. Coincidentally, that's enough of do not fear, do not be afraid, and uh, fear not for every day of the year. Stop being afraid. There's no reason to. Is God not in charge? Giving into fear brings us to an inability, an inability to move and make decisions. It freezes us. It stunts us. It stops us in our tracks. It brings us to acquiescence and compromise in making those decisions. Fear does those things. It will defeat you ultimately. That's why we must put our mind and our hearts on the fact that God is still God. He is still the God of all gods. Or He is no God at all. And that He is in control. He will have His way. He will have His decree played out exactly as He has said. We are commanded to not fear, for God is the one who is in control. When we do, we should repent and pray. For we are invited to enter the throne, of, uh, the throne room of grace with what? Confidence. We have a throne room of grace. You know, today we make much of, of men and their uh, man caves. This is the ultimate man cave. Men. The throne room of grace is the ultimate man cave. Let us make that our man cave. The throne room of grace. Ladies. And their she sheds. Make the throne room of grace of God. Your she shed. Spend much time there. Dwell in that place. That is where we should dwell much. And spend much time there. And I'm the first to confess. I don't spend nearly enough time. In that throne room. In that man cave. That should be our man cave. That should be our she shed. That's the one that we should brag about. That's the one that we should talk about. I was in my man cave today. And me and God. Man. That's awesome. That's why he says do not fear. Paul, when he talks about this in, in, in uh, Philippians, um, he says, do not be anxious for anything. He says, but in everything by prayer, he had, that was his man cave, his prayer closet, the throne room of grace. That's why he could say that. Don't be anxious for anything. The guy was beaten. He was killed, nearly. <laughs> he was sickened. He was poisoned. He had all these things that happened to him. He was shipwrecked. He says, don't be anxious for anything. I've been through. I've been through more stuff than you. And I tell you, God is faithful in His promises in tribulation. And then He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? With thanksgiving. Thank you. God, my body hurts. My back hurts, shoulders, my knees. Things aren't working like they used to. But God, thank you. I can still feel them. I can still move. I can still do things for you. And I praise you for that. When we focus our minds on the thankfulness that we should be for all the things that God does, that is what keeps us from that fear. He says, let your request be made known to God. Don't hold back. And you're going to the throne room of grace. If you're going to make it a request, you may as well make it a big one. Make it all small and tiny. Go to God and just be outlandish. You know, go to Him that way. With confidence. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, it's going to do what? It's going to guard your heart. That's why you don't have to fear. And, it, and your minds. The two places where fear strikes the most. 
the mind and the heart. And the heart is exceedingly wicked. But we need to go to God often. We need to spend a lot of time in that, sh- that she shed and in that man cave. We need to spend a lot of time there. And he says that the, the, it surpasses all comprehension except for his. It surpasses all our comprehension. It will guard your hearts and your minds in what? In Christ Jesus. He says in verse 34 that he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. You see, he's, going to want, he's the one who's going to pull it off. In verse 33 he says, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop off the boughs with terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down. And those who are lofty will be abased. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. See, there's promises that are faithful in tribulation. It's going to come. He said, but keep this in the back of your mind. A remnant will return. That's my promise. I have a people who are mine. And I will not let them go. It isn't that we have a hold of God. It's that God has a hold of us. And He's the one who makes it happen. The mighty one, it says here. The mighty one will do this. I want to read to you from Isaiah 33. It's in your bulletin. 33, 17 through 24. This is what it says of the mighty one. It says, starting in verse 17 from Isaiah. He says, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Who is he who counts? Who is he who weighs? Who is he who counts the towers? Will you no longer see a fierce people? Or excuse me, you will no longer see a fierce people. A people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of stammering tongues, which no one understands. He says, look upon Zion. That city of David. It says, look to it. That city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. An undisturbed habitation. The terror of destruction and kept. Excuse me. I was on the wrong page. <laughs> you will see Jerusalem. An undisturbed habitation. A tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, Yahweh, will be for us. A place of rivers and wide canals, on which no boat with oars will go, and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle hangs slack. It cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then they pray of an abundant spoil. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder. No resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. Hallelujah. There's a time coming. It's interesting that we were talking about this a little bit on on Wednesday. That there's an eternal. There's an eternity. An eternality to everything that is promised by God and His faithfulness. Even in tribulation. Just don't forget that. There's a time when people will say, I'm not sick. Nor can I be sick. A time when we will know without a doubt that our sins are forgiven, our iniquities are removed. This is what God is conveying to His people. The time of Isaiah. But not just to them. His remnant as well. His remnant today. Not just of yesteryear. But of today. His faithful promises to have a people. Who will ultimately dwell. In the not only in the shadow of the Almighty. But in His very presence. It's not just going to be the shadow. And be him in his presence. That is the promise of his faithfulness. 
in tribulation. Time and a place will come where there is no sickness to fear. There is no sin to fear. There is no enemy to fear. No fear anymore save the fear of the Lord. For His promises are faithful and true. This is the eternal future of the redeemed of God to live His faithful promises. And that's what the faithful promises are about. So that we will live in them. Because of the one who has given them. He is the one who has made those sure. If you've never known him. You've never trusted in him. Trusted him. Turn to him. And know that these things are secure. Because they're secure in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. Let's pray. Father thank you for your goodness. And your grace. And your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. The glory of your holiness and righteousness. That is all seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I long for that time when we no longer will struggle with sin. Sinful thoughts. When we will be in that time when we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. But until then, Lord, strengthen us. In our tribulations, help us to remember your faithful promises. Promises that you have given to your people and the one who has given them the one who has made them the one who is powerful enough to keep them righteous enough true enough thank you for all these things and more that we can know that we're forgiven that we can know that we have an eternal home and that we can know that we will be in your presence and dwell there where you are at and you will be our light because of your faithful promises because of your faithful word. Because of the faithful King and Savior. Who died on that cross. And took our sin. And became that curse for us. And in exchange. Clothed us. In his righteousness. And imputed to us. His righteousness. As he was imputed with our sin. The great exchange. Thank you. That we are free. For those who trust in you. Trust in your word and trust in your faithful promises. We thank you that you are the good, righteous, holy one. The mighty one who saves lost sinners like us. And calls us his saints. The redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for adopting us and making us your own. You are so good. Lord, we pray all these things in the name that is above all names. The holy, precious powerful and glorious, exalted name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.